Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. Today, we are delighted to hear another voice of eating disorder recovery. Lucy Waldman is here to tell us about her experience. Lucy is the author of The Jots of Becoming, an awesome book that features narratives and insights about fully recovering from anorexia nervosa and includes multiple Jewish excerpts. She's donating 20% of the money raised by the book to Project Heal as one of the organization's ambassadors. Lucy also runs an eating disorder recovery awareness and support account on Instagram, enjoys speaking for other podcasts and mediums about the intersection between Judaism and mental health, and is deeply passionate about mental health, eating disorder recovery, and equity in the treatment setting. Lucy is from Virginia Beach and is a psychology major at Old Dominion University. We're so lucky to have you here, Lucy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. There's so much we want to cover. We want to talk about your personal recovery story. We want to talk about the intersection of Judaism and mental health to all the awesome work you do for and, and in the recovery community. And we know that your book involves all of those topics. So let's let's start there. Can you tell us about the Jots of Becoming and your decision to write it? When I was going through my own recovery, I really wanted there to be more resources that I could resonate with, but I had a lot of trouble finding them because I noticed a lot of times you even see this with treatment centers, not allowing eating disorder books that a lot of them feature numbers or explicit mention of behaviors. And I often felt I walked away from reading eating disorder books, feeling more on how to have an eating disorder rather than on how to recover. And through my own recovery, I realized like the longer I recovered, the less I thought to mention like my lowest anything or any mention of behaviors. And I realized that the process is not about that. So I challenged myself to write a book about my story without ever mentioning those. And I thought it would be really meaningful for my year mark out of treatment, which was last year, to capture all my journal entries and from a year out exactly a year and just to see the progress that I feel like a lot of times you don't like know like how far you've come until you look back at like previous entries or previous thoughts and you're like wow like this is so cool that I no longer resonate with this that is so awesome let's talk a little bit about those some of those messages you heard through the process like in the books the treatment settings other places that just didn't resonate with you and really what messages you wished you would have heard instead what do you think would have been helpful or hopeful to hear when you were struggling one of the biggest messages i've tried to work on debunking is that you have to be ready or there will be this like magic light bulb moment that all of a sudden that shines down on you and helps you choose recovery. And you hear a lot of people say like, oh, you have to hit rock bottom before you start or there will just be, you just have to be ready. Like you don't deserve help or you can't start until you're ready. And at the beginning, I don't know if I felt ready. And I think it's sometimes hard to know when the beginning is. And I like the challenge at the beginning really isn't that significant. It's really just the beginning. And having willingness to start recovery 
is sometimes more important than readiness, in my opinion. Just the willingness to try at the next meal or the next snack and just start where you are, I think is way more important than being like the most like gung-ho person about recovery at the beginning. Because the truth is, even though most people talk about it, like most narratives talk about that they're really famous, most of the time it's not like that. That is, I think that's such an excellent point. And I love that you brought that up because I, as a, as a clinician and also as somebody who's recovered from an eating disorder, I've always struggled a little bit like that because part of the illness is about not having readiness be a thing, right? The illness is never going to be ready for you to let go of it. It's never going to be ready to go away in, in some ways, right? Like that's just part of the illness. So to assume that people have to be ready, I love that. Like the light bulb has to be shining down on you and, and it's all like all the things are in alignment to be ready. Doesn't really fit with what these illnesses do for people, you know, do in our, in people's minds. And, and so I love that concept of like being willing to try the beginning. Sure. That's like even a little willingness is a good ingredient in that process. But I love that concept of like, maybe there won't be like the magic time you're ready. For some people, I think there might be a time when they're like, yes, this is it. But for a lot of people, I think you're right. It's a, I don't know if I'm ready. I might be ready now, but in five minutes, I might not be ready. So Mm -hmm. I love that concept. Tell us a little bit more too around, you know, we really appreciate that you refrained from mentioning specific numbers and behavior use in the book. And, and like you mentioned earlier, that a lot of other books kind of do that. That's unique. So I'd love you to tell us a little bit about what made you think about refraining from mentioning those things and, and how do you think that's helpful? And then I want to add to that, if we can make that even longer question of another unique thing of your, of your book is the Jewish content. And if you could tell us a little bit about the intersection between your Jewish identity and your illness and recovery experience, you know, we know everybody's experience is different, but we'd love to hear your perspective on why it's important, uh, why that was an important part of your experience and why it's important to validate that. So, so two-parter there, why refraining from the numbers and tell us a little bit about that intersection between your identity and, and your process. I refrain from numbers. Eating disorders really are such competitive illnesses. So when I saw those numbers in books or people talked about it in treatment, there's this automatic thought of, oh, I can do better. I can one up that. But doing better really does, like doing better doesn't get you anywhere. It just gets you sicker. And it takes a long time to realize like sickness like really isn't the goal, but it really isn't. Like it's so far from what life is actually like. And I think there's something so refreshing that outside of like treatment or the eating disorder, like tiny community, no one cares. Like no one cares what your lowest weight was or your number of emissions. And like those things are so irrelevant to telling like how far you've come. I sort of realized that I could put any numbers in and my story would be the exact same. They're really not that important. And in terms of including Jewish content, that was really important to me because I noticed there was a lot of Jewish holidays that revolve around food and different food rituals, but there's very little guides or helpful explanations on how to go about handling them when you're recovering from an eating disorder. A lot of times people will post articles, especially around young people on Jewish law says don't fast. 
and that not fasting is a mitzvah, but they don't really touch upon the guilt and the sort of decision-making process that goes on in one's head. And I wanted to take it a step further to not just say, oh, you can't fast because of your eating disorder, but because the meaning of the holiday is so significant that you can't go about apologizing and starting over and to shiva really means to return. So you can't go about the whole process if your eating disorder is loud, if the thoughts are running rampant. And just helping people realize like they deserve better. And just because the law says one thing, that the meaning is more important because that was really the way I was brought up. I spent a lot of time in high school and even before that doing a lot of Jewish activities. I really loved going to an overnight camp. I work at an overnight camp now. And it's just such a big part of my life. And I can't imagine my life without it. And my therefore my recovery wouldn't have been the same without it either. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. Are there other areas that that are are specific to the experiences of, of Jewish people with eating disorders that you feel like should have higher visibility or treatment centers should think about or providers should think about that would be important to hit on in your in your experience that might be meaningful to other people too? I noticed a lot of times the family dynamic isn't as touched upon. Not that every Jewish family is the same, but I do think there are still stems from this immigrant mentality of have worked so hard to be where we are now that shapes a lot of families and high levels of anxiety. One of the conversations I've had with my grandparents before is that from an evolutionary perspective, having anxiety serve Jewish people because it got them to flee from anti-Semitism. So like realizing that some of the traditional approaches to family therapy are not as relevant to Jewish clients. And there's sort of this aspect of like, oh, if a family member's not good for you, you should just like cut them out. But like, for me, I never resonated with that because the family union unit is something that's like so highly valued. And I just think this whole thing of like intergenerational trauma and the fact that some clients can't have visitors because visiting is on Saturday and their families can't travel and sort of working around and accommodating to the schedule, I think could be really helpful. Absolutely. That, that totally makes sense. What about, I, I know that we've had conversations in limited ways in the field about clients that practice kosher or need to keep kosher. Any thoughts you have around that with, as it relates to eating disorder treatment that you've thought of as, as you've gone through your experience? I think sometimes kosher and kosher is, or kosher is looked at as such a black and white way. Like either the person keeps like totally kosher or doesn't keep kosher at all. But there's so much on a spectrum that I think listening to the client and having them advocate for what they need is so much more important than trying to argue like, oh, this is part of your eating disorder and this is not. Because a lot of it has to do with how you were raised. Because some people like keep kosher in the home, but don't keep kosher when they go out to eat. And it's all different from person to person and just really having an open perspective when viewing that. 
that makes sense. I think that's helpful information to keep in mind. What about holidays? We, you know, we know that holidays generally can be very challenging for people with eating disorders. What were holidays like for you during your illness? Holidays for me were very stressful. I would get really nervous, especially because holidays meant seeing more family. And especially if I wasn't doing well, having to try to explain to my family like why I wasn't doing well just seemed unimaginable. And all the food. And I found so much time like preoccupied in my own head that I never really enjoyed the holiday. And like Yom Kippur represented for me like a time to get away with socially acceptable way to get away with my eating disorder and same with Passover. That like all the joy that is meant to have been in holidays was sucked out. And I think even in treatment, I remember celebrating Hanukkah in treatment. I just feel so lonely because most treatment centers, I was the only Jewish person at the time. So, and it's not, most treatment centers don't acknowledge it. So it can be really hard. Yeah, that that sounds like it would, it would be challenging and adds sort of an additional burden around holidays. How did you learn to navigate holidays and recovery? Did you find recovery oriented ways to observe them that helped you to, to shift your experience with them? It wasn't something that was talked about when I started recovery. So I spent a lot of time, like through my Instagram and everything, creating recovery-oriented experiences. I think it was last year. I did a eight nights of recovery Hanukkah challenge for people on Instagram. And I created it with another Jewish person. And it was like every night was a different... One was like eat a fear food, like say something you're grateful for. And like, so like there was a way to observe the holiday in such a recovery oriented way. And, but all of that stuff I've had to create from scratch and it's something I love doing, but it, it did take a lot of effort. And you did it so beautifully. So it is, it is, so you can tell it sort of weaves a bit of your story as a labor of love and just just generous sharing with others. So we really appreciate how you were able to channel that into, into in many ways in, in the content that you're creating. Uh, you know, we know that you're using your recovery in, in, in ways other than writing, and, and you're certainly doing it in writing. Uh, you speak at treatment centers, you share hope online with your Instagram page. How, how is all of this amazing work you're doing, this involvement in recovery work, uh, benefiting your own recovery? And, and what do you see yourself doing next in, in your process? I consider myself fully recovered and I didn't start speaking and all of that until I was pretty far along because I really wanted to make sure I was practicing what I was preaching. And I was worried that if I started too early and then the process was rocky. So I built a solid foundation for myself and but going from just recovering to being a voice of hope and helping others recover has been so gratifying because it shows that people will really believe it's more possible when it's like someone who's recovered saying that it's been like I've been where you are and I can help you get there and I love the work that I do and I find it so like gratifying and just like when I think back about why I recovered like it was my why and 
In terms of what's next, I'm really excited to be a senior in college and start the graduate school process in terms of applying to be a uh, mental health counseling program to one day be an eating disorder therapist and working towards my recovery coaching license. That's awesome. We're, we're excited to sort of track your progress and, and hear more about how that goes. I'm always curious, you know, I, I loved what you said about, you know, thinking about seeing yourself, imagining how recovery might go and, and wondering if that's possible. You know, a lot of people will, will say, and maybe people listening right now will, will say like, yeah, yeah, that's all good and well for you. Like, that's great. That's so great, Lucy, that you're doing that. It's so great that people will recover, but you know what? It's just not possible for me. I just don't think it's possible for me. What would you say to somebody listening right now that might be thinking, I don't think that's going to happen for me? I didn't think it would happen for me either, truthfully. And I would say that it might not happen tomorrow or next week, but all the small steps you're doing towards recovery are adding up. Like every meal, every snack, every time you defy the eating disorder once is adding up to a longer and stronger recovery. And it's a long road, but eventually through all of the work, it does pay off. That's so well said. Thank you. If people want to learn more, if they want to read your book, where can they find you? Where can they find your book, your Instagram? Tell us where people can connect with you. You can find my book on Amazon. It's called The Joths of Becoming. And my Instagram is at living as Lucy with periods between the two words, like where there be space is normally there's periods. Great. We'll definitely include that with the, with the podcast. Thank you, Lucy, so much for sharing your story with us. I think the voices of recovery are just so important and yours is a beautiful, a beautiful addition to that chorus. So thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.